Let's have God's word open, open us up now to uh, Philippians. We'll look at chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 1, and we'll go down all the way uh, to verse 11. And this is the reading of God's holy word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer at this time? O God, we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would speak, O Lord, that you would renew our minds and help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, these truths that have been unchanged since the dawn of time that echoes throughout all eternity, that we may stand upon your promises and by faith walk day by day, that we may be built up and conformed into your likeness all the more. Would you speak, O Lord, as your church is built and this whole world is filled with your glory. Amen. Uh, In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, uh, Paul writes this, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, after Paul writes this, everything that he talks about after is explaining what this looks like. You know, if I were to ask you, what does a life worthy of the gospel look like? How would you answer? Well, interestingly for Paul, his greatest emphasis in describing the Christian life is unity. It's quite the answer, right? Uh, It's unexpected and certainly not the main focus of modern-day Christianity. You know, today, Christians, we tend to focus on the individual, right? We say things like, the Christian life is all about a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, while this is important, it's also incomplete. See, for Paul, the Christian life is about how your personal relationship with Jesus affects and changes your relationship with others. 
especially other Christians. You know, if I can restate this uh, using theological language, because uh, I know some of our congregants just love theology, especially on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m., um, to state this theologically, to live a life worthy of the gospel means that you allow your union with Jesus to dictate your union with other sinners in Jesus. In other words, the closer that you can bring these two unions together, the closer to biblical Christianity you will be. You know, Paul, as he talks about a life that's worthy of the gospel, he assumes that this life takes place in the context of community, in the context of relationships. You know, you might be someone who is um, right now discouraged or disappointed by church community. Or you might be someone who's just tired of hearing about talks, about unity and oneness with no real progress. Still, if that's you, do not give up on community. A life worthy of the gospel takes place in the context of community. So, with this in mind, as we go into today's passage, we find that Paul, he gives us real practical guides as to how we can achieve unity among the saints, how we can live this life that's worthy of the gospel. And today, I just want to focus on two things. The first is conformity, and the second is humility. Would you first look with me in verse 5? This is what Paul writes. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, after he says this, after he says, think like Jesus, he then goes on to more specifics, and he recites a psalm. Now, this is uh, found in the following verses, but he he recites a song that speaks about Jesus' beginnings. His beginnings as God, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God. And then it talks about his voluntary condescension. It talks about his incarnation. Then it moves on to his suffering and his death. And finally, in verse 9, it talks about his exaltation. Paul, he recites a song about Jesus and his life as he encourages the church to have the same mind and heart as Jesus. Do you see what Paul is doing here in chapter 2? As he's charging Christians to become united, he tells them, I want you to be like Jesus. I want you to think like Jesus. I want you to have the same attitude as Jesus. You know, every organization or every group of people that makes an attempt to be one has to rally around something, right? Um, For a sports team, it's usually, they usually rally around winning. Uh, For a business, they rally around uh, making a profit or fulfilling its mission statement. For a family, it, it might be collective happiness that they rally around. In other words, for unity to be accomplished, there has to be a center of mass that gravity will just pull things towards. Right? That's how unity is achieved. And for the Christian, 
for the church. That center of mass is Jesus. You see, as each individual Christian is being drawn to Jesus, as each Christian is being shaped and molded by Jesus, as each Christian is abiding in the words of Jesus and being slowly transformed, that is how unity is attained in the church. Unity in the church is attained not by trying to be one, but by trying to be like Jesus. See, that's what he says in verse 2. If you look, he says in verse 2, Have the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. You see, Paul isn't talking about just some generic, charitable mind and heart. He's not saying have the same mind and heart and spirit as your leaders or the most influential person in your group or the most vocal person. No, he says have the same heart and mind and spirit as Jesus. You see, the church is striving, ought to strive after a unity that's centered on Jesus. You know, as a minister uh, in the church, I find that when people disagree, when people disagree, especially in the church, uh, when people are at odds fighting with one another, you know, too often I find myself exerting a lot of strength trying to just pull these two parties together. You know, I search hard for some common ground, uh, for a common memory, for something to just rally people around. And I'll, I'll admit that, you know, I, I fail more often than not. Most of the time I end up being depleted of energy and the two parties just going their separate ways. You know, I, I think to myself, if I can just get them to agree to disagree, I feel like I've done a good job. I, I know my standards are really low. But, you know, it never dawned upon me until more recently that trying to pull people together towards something that isn't the center of mass is exhausting and it's doomed to fail. It's like pulling rubber bands towards you. That once you let go, it's going to snap back. Friends, when the Bible calls Christians to unity, it's actually first a call to conformity. It's a call for each and every Christian to become like Jesus in every possible way. And as we are being conformed into his likeness, into his image, that is how we attain unity among the saints. So on a more practical note, if you are struggling with being united to other believers, if you're struggling even simply being connected to other believers, I believe that's the word that's used often, connected. If you're struggling with this, let me encourage you. Don't make unity the focus, but make conformity the focus. Seek to become like Jesus in every possible way. And the Bible promises unity will come naturally. Or, if you're in disagreement with someone, right now if you're fighting with someone, 
Instead of trying to find common ground, simply seek to become like Jesus in that relationship. If unity is something that you are really after, seek to become like Jesus in that relationship. You know, if um, you know, you're probably not going to like me for saying this, but you know, if you're trying to win an argument, or if you're just trying to one up the other person. Or even if you're trying to negotiate, keep doing with your, what you're doing. But if you're seeking biblical unity and biblical reconciliation, I urge you, become like Jesus. You know, Paul writes this in uh, Philippians 4.2. He writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You know, in this great church, the Church of Philippi, a church that partnered with Paul from the very beginning, uh, there were fights, divisions, disagreements. We see it here, practically, two people. And notice what Paul says. He says, agree in the Lord. He doesn't say, agree on what you're fighting about. Paul doesn't say, hey, I want you to come to a consensus. Come to a consensus on the matter. You know, come to a consensus on uh, whether the dress is blue or gold, right? It's blue, by the way. Paul says, no, agree in the Lord. You know, a gospel-driven life, a life that's worthy of the gospel, doesn't lead to self-actualization or self-expression. Rather, it leads to conformity into the likeness of Christ. You know, if I can use this analogy, a life worthy of the gospel doesn't lead you to create and produce your own hit record label. Rather, it leads you to be an amazing cover artist, taking the songs of Jesus and really making it your own. So, we find here that the first real practical guide to unity to a life that's worthy of the gospel is conformity to Jesus. The second, the second guy that we find is humility. Would you look with me in verses 3 to 4? Paul writes this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Again, the goal is unity, but the method by which unity is attained is humility. In other words, Paul is saying this, consider yourself to be less significant than others. Consider your time to be less valuable than others. Consider your opinions, your wants, your desires to be less important than others. And if you do so, That is how unity is attained. A humble life, a life that considers others to be more important, is a life worthy of the gospel. You know, Rick Warren was accurate when he said this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Again, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. Or as I like to say, 
Humility isn't self-deprecation. It's self-forgetfulness. Friends, the gospel isn't calling us to see how insignificant we are. Rather, it's calling us to see significance in others. Now, I know some people might think that, you know, these things are close cousins. Self-deprecation and self-forgetfulness. Now, you might think that they look and sound the same. But they're actually not. They're actually polar opposites. Uh, it's, it's like the, uh, the Nintendo characters, right? Mario and uh, Wario. Um, forgive me, I've been playing uh, Nintendo Switch with my kids lately, and it's the best analogy I can think of, right? They look the same. Uh, they have similar names. But they're actually uh, polar opposites. You know, I would go as far as to say that one is a remedy for the other. That self-forgetfulness is a remedy for self-deprecation. So, right now, um, currently, if you are in this self-deprecating mode, if you're constantly feeling bad for yourself, while constantly critiquing yourself harshly, the only way out of it is not by thinking more highly of yourself. The only way out of this self-deprecating mode is not by pumping more self-esteem into yourself, but it's by thinking of others more and putting them first. Self-forgetfulness will get you out of the vicious cycle of self-deprecation. You see, the Bible tells us that there is something powerfully healing and true um, about biblical humility. You know, biblical humility has the power to heal us from the wounds wounds of feeling like we're never good enough. Biblical humility has the power to heal us from the scars of past personal mistake. It heals us from the haunting regrets of self-inadequacies. True biblical humility is also freeing. It frees us from always having to look over our shoulders. It frees us from thinking that we will be taken advantage of. It frees us from our own insecurities. True biblical humility has a way of releasing us, has a way of freeing us, has a way of healing us and making us whole so that we can think of others first. You know, what I find striking about gospel humility is how radical it is. You know, the culture here in the West um, believes strongly in equality. Uh, Currently, equality is our highest moral. It's our highest ethic. We prize equality above everything else. So gender, race, social standing, right? The dominant culture of today says that we are equal. You know, it's taken human civilization, it's taken human society thousands of years just to reach this point, this point of saying we're all equal. But you know, the Bible takes this one step further. The Bible says we are so secure in the gospel 
we are so loved by Jesus that we can not only consider each other as equal, but we can consider others as better than us, as more important, more significant. The gospel tells us that we are so secure and loved by Jesus that we can become self-forgetful, self-sacrificial. We can consider others to be more important than us. And it's not going to crush us. Rather, it will uplift us. By considering others more important, by forgetting about ourselves, it will have the reverse effect. It will make us more secure and more confident in who we are. You know, if my son, if I find that he's always trying to one-up his brother, if he's constantly elevating himself at the expense of his own brother, that doesn't mean that he's confident. It doesn't mean that he's secure. No, it means that he's insecure. He's insecure in his identity as my son. But... When my son, if he's constantly serving his brother, if he's constantly putting his brothers first, it means that he's so confident in my love for him. He knows that he doesn't have to fight for the crumbs because he knows that he belongs at the table. Friends, I know that, you know, talks of conformity and humility can sound somewhat threatening. It can sound threatening to the self. But let me assure you that the gospel doesn't do away with the individual. The gospel does away with individualism, but it doesn't do away with the individual. You see, redemption in Jesus leads to individual stories, unique backgrounds, a diversity of gifts, But all of this is brought together and centered upon Jesus. Centered upon being like Jesus and humbly serving one another. And that is what makes unity possible. This is a life that's worthy of the gospel. This is a life that lives the gospel out. You know, let me, um, you know, just conclude by sharing just two points of um, application or two points of clarity and application. And the first is this. Um, I don't know if you ever read Philippians 2, this passage, and think, wow, this is almost impossible. How can I consider others to be more important than me? Well, Paul actually says in verse 1 that you know this experience isn't foreign to us look at verse 1 he says this if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy and then he goes on to say do this be humble and conform to Jesus If you look, verse 1, you know, Paul, he's actually appealing to the experience. He's saying, 
if you've ever felt encouragement from Jesus, if you've ever, ever felt any comfort from his love, if there was any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. See, Paul, he's appealing to experience. He doesn't say, if you know Jesus' love, but he says, if you've experienced Jesus' love. And most likely what Paul is doing here is he is tying the individual's experience of grace to someone else's act of humility, service, and conformity to Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying this, if you've ever felt God's love, it's probably because someone else showed it to you in his act of humility, in her act of trying to be like Jesus you were comforted. And Paul, he is appealing to this experience in the church saying, listen, your experience of grace is more often than not tied to someone else's humility. He's saying someone else thought that you were more important than themselves and they served you. They reflected Jesus to you. They were humble. And in that way, you experienced grace. In that way, you felt God's love. You were comforted by his presence. And Paul, I think, is interestingly, he's appealing to this experience to encourage the church that, hey, this isn't some foreign or alien idea. This is what's going on in the church. So please, don't think that you're the only one or you're the first one. But you have experienced this yourself. And so would you now, also, in your efforts and in your desire to live a life worthy of the gospel, will you serve others? Will you count them to be more important than yourself? Will you conform to Jesus' likeness, his image? I think this is a real practical point. Would you at this time just think? Think about how you were encouraged by someone else's act of humility. And let that encourage you and challenge you. Let that motivate you. Let that stimulate you. Let that be the catalyst for you to go and do likewise unto others. The second, um, I think, real practical thing that we find in today's passage or point of application is... That as Paul uh, appeals to unity, that as he tells everyone to be like Jesus, he quotes a song. He recites a song. Now, I think this is very, very powerful. Right? He quotes a song. He doesn't quote a, a dictionary definition of what unity is. But he just recites a song, a song that they probably sang often, a song that they were familiar with. And he recites this song as a powerful way to teach them what unity is. You know, I think we we all can acknowledge that songs, music, singing has real power to teach uh, very difficult concepts 
in very simple ways. You know, um, all day I have these nursery rhymes and these songs just stuck into my stuck in my head, and it's because my youngest son Brooklyn he watches things on his on on the iPad, and everything that is that he watches is a song. <laughs> Uh, and you know, for those of your parents who know, you know, you hear the song over and over again, and it just gets stuck in your head. There, songs have real power to teach. Songs have this power to um, conform. Songs have power to unite. And I think the reason why Paul he recites a song is because he he's trying to say, listen. You know how you sing the song together. You know how uh, this song unites the congregation. You know how when we sing, right, everyone is conformed to the tune and the melody of that song. No one is saying, "Follow my pitch, follow my melody," but everyone is being conformed to that song. Paul is saying, just in the way that you sing, so also be conformed. To Jesus, you know, singing has a powerful way of teaching us difficult, difficult concepts, and it has the power to unite. So, friends, in the same way that we sing together, in the same way that when we sing, we listen to other people, we listen to ourselves sing. And we try to adjust our volume, our pitch. We try to adjust our tempo according to this song. As we come collectively together, being conformed to this song, would we now come together in unity, being conformed into the likeness of Jesus, and being humble, serving one another, just as Jesus has served us. You know, often uh, when I come across um, a passage in the Bible um, that I just, you know, want more clarification, or um, I feel like it's a bit too distant for me, I I tend to open up um, a Bible translation called the Message. Now, um, I have to warn you: the Message, uh, translated by Eugene Peterson, isn't really an accurate translation. It's more of an interpretation, but um, it has a way of really using this biblical language and making it um, more apparent or more uh, relevant or just easily digestible uh, for Christians today. And so let me just end by reading you uh, the translation of today's passage, verses 1 to 5 in the message. He says this, If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. 
forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way that Jesus Christ thought of himself. Would you join me in prayer at this time?